Father, we lift our eyes to the mountain. Where does our help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord God, we lift our eyes once again to your mountain of holiness. As we look to you, Father, we run to you. We thank you that you have the words of life and where else would we go? So, Father, as we pause right now in our worship of you to listen to your words once again from the book of Daniel, we run to where you are and sit at your feet. And as the Lord Jesus Christ sat on the mountain to teach his people your truth, so, Lord God, we sit at the feet of Jesus, our Lord, this morning. As you again open our hearts to your truth. We thank you for the book of Daniel and we thank you for this time that we can pause to listen to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, Amen. When my brother and myself were growing up in Singapore, we used to visit an Indonesian restaurant. To us, at the time, the Indonesian restaurant looked extremely posh. But looking back, it was just a suburban eatery in one of the suburbs in Singapore. The restaurant had a glass wall right in front, so you could actually look into the restaurant. Remember when we were young, we would always stand outside the restaurant and look into the restaurant. And you can see all the Indonesian curries and rice that they placed in front of the restaurant. Standing outside the restaurant, you could smell <laughs> the fragrant, piping hot jasmine rice as the waiters were bringing out the rice from the cookers. You could smell the freshly cooked fish fillets immersed in the thick coconut milk balanced with all kinds of exotic Asian greens. You could smell the melt in your mouth Chunks of beef simmering in the thick, exotic sauce of, uh, with, with lots of peanuts thrown in to add to the crunch of the curry beef. As little kids, we had this theory that the more you stand in front of that restaurant when you are hungry, and the more you take in that fragrance of the yummy food, the quicker you could ease your hunger pangs. And we would stand outside, little kids, outside the restaurant and be lost in deep fantasy. We would always fantasize what it would like to be in that restaurant, to have that muscle of juicy fish fillet place in your mouths. And we would often discuss amongst ourselves what we would order if we were ever invited into that restaurant to eat. As little kids, we knew the menu. We knew the order of all the dishes. We knew the faces of the regular customers who would come to the restaurant to eat. We would talk constantly about the menu. But do you know what? My brother and I have never been inside the restaurant. Not even once. We have never tasted, not even a grain, of the piping hot jasmine rice. The food was right in front of us, but we were separated from reaching the food because there was a glass wall, a thick glass wall that separated us 
from the fruit. We could smell it, see it, but we've never ever tasted the fruit. There are many of us who know how to talk the Christian talk. We know the cliches, just like we knew the menu of that restaurant. We knew how to raise, people know how to raise their hands in worship. We know how to converse in the Christian doctrines, whether it's the doctrine of reprobation or uh, a divine election. We knew how to converse the Christian doctrines. But have we ever tasted Christ? Or do we just know how to talk the talk, but never actually sat down and feasted with Him? The gospel is not something we just talk about, not something we debate about, not something we even write about. But it's something for us to experience in our lives. Do we just talk about Christ and then there is a thick glass wall still between us and Christ? So how do we know that your faith is real? This is the burden of our text for this morning as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. Today we are looking at Daniel chapter 2 verses 24 to 45. Daniel chapter 2 verses 24 to 45. And this is the burden of the text. How do you know that your faith is real? So before we look into this text, we need to situate this text in its context. Daniel tells us that uh, this was the time when the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream at night. The dream is basically God's assessment of the king's reign. According to God, King Nebuchadnezzar was able to sit on the throne and to be able to have power over the kingdoms of the earth, not because it was an accident, not even because King Nebuchadnezzar was smart, but he was able to be the sovereign ruler in the ancient Near East because of God, because of the sovereignty of God has placed this man to be the king. So what is, this is what God says. And this is Daniel speaking at verse 37 of Daniel chapter 2. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion. So your power is the God of heaven. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky. These things come to you, not because you are smart, but because God allowed it. Wherever they live, He has made you ruler over them. You are the head of gold. God has made Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. And just as uh, Adam had dominion over the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air in Genesis chapter 1, 26, here King Nebuchadnezzar was given the same privilege. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar was like the second Adam, given all this privilege by the awesome God to rule over creation. So what does God think about King Nebuchadnezzar's reign? So Daniel here tells the king the dream, which is God's assessment of the king's reign. So let's look at what God has to say about King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Verse 31 of chapter 2. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, this is the dream, 
enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Verse 32. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chairs and its arms of silver, its belly and its ties bronze, its leg of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smash them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like a shard on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. So this was the dream that the king had. The Bible tells us that the statue represents the king, King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, especially the pure head of gold. And the rest of the statue, which, uh, uh, which consists of different other metals and iron and clay, belonged to the kingdoms that would follow after King Nebuchadnezzar. Like the golden head represents the kingdom of Babylon. The second uh, part of it, which is the silver, represents the Mede and the Persian Empire. The third kingdom, which is the bronze, is the Hellenistic Empire. And then the last kingdom is the kingdom of Rome. The kingdoms of the world is represented by this huge, dazzling statue. We'll talk about each of these kingdoms in due course, and it will not be my attention for this morning. But what I want you to look at is what does God think about this statue? God wants to destroy this statue, which represents the kingdoms of the world, whether it's Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, whether it's Hellenistic or the Romans, God wants to destroy it. Why? Two reasons. Number one, King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms that come after him knew nothing about the glory of God. They knew nothing about the glory of God. The statue was very impressive. Daniel even tells us it was covered with gold, silver, bronze, and iron. It must be quite a sight to behold. But notice that when the statue not only was glistering with brightness, it was glistening with the brightness of human riches. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. They were the precious metals of the past, but also the precious metals of today. But King Nebuchadnezzar, who was called the second Adam here, was supposed to shine not with the glistening glory of worldly riches, but he was supposed to shine with the glory of God. But all the king was able to shine was the glory of worldly riches. This is why God wants to destroy this statue, because it only shone not with the glory of God, but it shone with the glory of God of human riches. And how does God want to destroy this statue? The Bible tells us that a rock that was not cut by human hands will strike its, the feet of the statue. What is this rock not cut up by human hands? In the Old Testament, rocks uncut by human hands refers to the rocks that were used to build the altars of the altar of God. It means that 
this rock is of God's doing. It has to do with the worship of God. And it's about to destroy the kingdoms of the world. And after this statue has been smattered and broken into smithereens, the Bible also tells us that this rock that hit the statue becomes a mountain so huge that it fills the entire earth. What on earth is this vision about? Number one, why, why mountain? Throughout the Bible, God often makes people on top of a mountain. Eden, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, was located on a mountain. When Israel first came out of Egypt, Moses met with God on a mountain in Exodus chapter 19 when he received the Ten Commandments from God. Likewise, in the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that Jesus went up seven mountains throughout the book. Jesus, for instance, was on top of a mountain when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus went up the mountain again in Matthew chapter 5 when he taught the Beatitudes. Jesus was again on top of a mountain when he fed the multitudes in Matthew chapter 15, and the list goes on. What is interesting is this, that after Moses went up the mountain, what happened to him? Moses' face, according to Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35, started to glow. The same thing happened to Jesus. When Jesus was at the mountain of transfiguration, the book of Matthew, what happened to him? Matthew 17 verse 2 tells us that when Jesus was at the mountain of transfiguration, his whole face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. But here King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms after him only shone with worldly glamour. They didn't shine to the glory of God. They were glistening, but they were glistening because of the gold, the silver, and the iron, and the bronze. They didn't shine to the glory of God. And that's why God had to destroy the whole statue. How do you know that your faith is real? Do you shine with the glory of God? Is your life slowly becoming more and more like Jesus? Are you glowing with more and more Christ-like love and compassion and generosity like Jesus? You are truly the child of God. What the Bible teaches us is that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. He will produce fruit in your heart in keeping with the regenerative work that the Spirit does. And we will bear fruit. We will glow with the glory of God. This is what is often called in Reformed theology as the doctrine of the perseverance of saints. God will persevere with us if your faith is true. If you really believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God's Spirit works in us. To produce fruit in keeping with the work the Spirit is already doing in our hearts. Do we glow with the glory of Jesus? Professor Robert Lewis Wilkin has noted, has studied really the question of why was the early church successful? You see, by the end of the first century AD, the early church only consisted of around 10,000 Christians. 
100 years later, there were 200,000 Christians. By the year 250 AD, there were over a million Christians. And 50 years after that, there were over 6 million Christians. The early church really didn't have a 12-step strategy of how to do missions. They didn't have a vision statement. They didn't have uh, 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 church planting strategies and teams going out, studying the market. No, no, no. In fact, they were persecuted most of the time. They didn't have social media to help them. Yet they grew exponentially. Why? Professor Wilkin tells us the secret to their success was they, 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 they were glistening with the glory of Jesus. They were glowing with the glory of Jesus. And the glory of Jesus was so blisteringly beautiful that when people saw the glory of Jesus within the church, people flock to the church. When people saw how the church, the early church, began to glisten and glow like Jesus in taking care of the orphan girls that would often been left at the city gates to die, when they saw the love of Jesus, many flocked to it. When the when the people saw how the early church took care of the widows and provided for uh, the, the, the widows and, and their families and helping the poor. And we saw, we saw the glory of Jesus through the preaching of the word. Something so attractive that it caused an exponential growth within the church. They glowed because of the glory of God working in their lives. And when God's glory shines, it is irresistible. So let me ask you, what is glowing in your life? The glory of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, or the glory of Jesus? Secondly, why did God want to destroy the statue which represents the kingdoms of the world? Secondly, because the statue had immovable feet. Let's look at verse 34. A rock was cut out, but not with human hands. So this was something that came from God. It struck the statue on its feet of iron clay and smashed them. The stone did not strike the statue on its head or on its breast, or on its shoulders. But the Bible tells us very specifically that the stone, which the, uh, is of God's doing, struck the statue at its feet. Why? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will understand. In the Old Testament, particularly in Micah chapter 4, and Isaiah chapter 2, you remember that the prophets predicted a time that when the Messiah would come, he would establish the mountain of the Lord. This is why in Matthew's gospel, we are told at least seven times, so that we don't miss it, seven times that Jesus is on top of a mountain, that the Messiah has come to establish the mountain of the Lord. But the prophets Micah and Isaiah also say something very fascinating. The Messiah will not only set up his mountain, but what will happen? Many from the nations will run up this mountain 
to be with the Messiah. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Micah chapter 4 verse 2. Micah the prophet says, Many nations will come and say, Let us go up the mountain of the Lord. When the Messiah comes, they will say, Let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways so that we will walk in His path. Micah predicted the time that when the Messiah comes, those who are called of God will run up this mountain to be with the Messiah, and the Messiah will teach them His ways. And the prophet Isaiah even prophesied a time whereby not only people, not only the Jews will run up this mountain, but even people of all nations. And Isaiah 18, one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, speaks about even the Cushites will run up the mountain and present offerings and gifts to God. Who are the Cushites? They're the black Africans. Even people from Africa, Gentiles from Africa, will run up this mountain and they will want to learn from God. And we see this fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus went up a mountain. And what would happen? Large crowds of people gathered around him. And what were they there for? To learn from Jesus. Isn't this what Micah had been prophesying? That the people will run up and they will say to the Messiah, He will teach us His ways so that we will walk in His paths. And Matthew chapter 5 looks, tells us that Jesus sat on a mountain and began to teach them what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. Our feet are made for hiking. We are made to hike up the mountain of God, says the prophet Micah, and there we are to learn from God. But the problem with this statue, which represents the kingdoms of the world, whether it's King Nebuchadnezzar or the kingdoms that come after him, is that they have what? Partly iron and partly black, big clay feet. Their feet are immovable. Even the whole statue seems like it's immovable. It's made of a, a golden head. For goodness sake, how can the statue even move? If you have a golden head, you will feel like topping over and falling down and breaking into pieces. The statue was not made for walking. And that's why God's rock came and struck the statue at its feet and once when the feet was broken the whole statue crumbles and breaks down into pieces then the rock becomes a mountain so those who are called will come to Jesus and learn from him how do you know that your faith is real? The spirit that lives in us will drive us to the mountain, to drive us to Jesus. And he will give us an eagerness to want to sit with Jesus, to learn from him. Do you have a desire to learn from Jesus? Do you have a desire to want to sit at his feet? Just like the people sat at his feet in Matthew chapter 5 and learned from him. Do you have a desire to run to him every time when you have a problem? Every time when you have a worry in life? Every time when you have a perplexity? 
run to him. Let him help you. Let him solve your problems. Let him dissolve the hurt in your life and heal you if you're pained. Do we run to Jesus? Or do we run to other things? Do we run to therapy first? Do we run to our friends first? Or do we run to Jesus and let him help us? Our feet are not to be made of clay and iron and to be immovable. But our feet are made to run to the Savior. Micah chapter 4 speaks about that. During the days of the Desert Fathers, there was a man, a young man who came to speak to one of the Desert Fathers, whom he highly esteemed. The young man came to this des one of the Desert Fathers and says to the Desert Father, I was hurt by a brother in Christ. Now I'm very angry and want to search revenge for myself. The Desert Father tried to comfort him, but gave him a little gentle warning and says, don't do that, my child. Rather leave your revenge to God. But the young Christian just would not listen to this desert father. Instead, he became angrier and angrier and he began shouting louder and louder. No, I won't quit. I want to get my revenge. I want to get even with this brother of mine. I need to get my revenge. When the desert father saw that the young man had come down, but yet he would not change. He said to this uh, young man, Let us pray, my dear brother. And after a pause, the desert father, together with this young man, knelt at the ground and started praying. And the desert father said this prayer, O oh, Father, O oh God, apparently we do not need you anymore to take care of us since we now can do vengeance for ourselves. From now on, we manage our own lives without your help. And when the young man heard this prayer, he immediately repented. And falling on the knees, he cried out, God, have mercy on us. I was about to, I will not fight my brother anymore, but I need you and I will run to you and place my anger before you. Do we run to God when we are angry? When we feel that people have let us down and people have hurt us? Do we carry the hurt ourselves and venge, avenged for ourselves? Or are we, like what the Desert Father says, willing to run to God and leave our anger at His feet? Do we need Him enough to place our burdens, our anger, our injustice at His feet? Our feet are made to hike up the mountain of God. Don't let your feet turn into clay and iron. Father, we come before you this morning to pray and to thank you, God, for these wonderful words of Scripture. Father, at times we've taken our problems into our own hands, our worries and anxieties in our own hands, and we don't run up the mountain and leave them at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have a heart to learn from you how to resolve our issues. 
Rather, we take them in our own hands. Father, you have called us and given us feet to hike up your mountain. And may we do that this morning and leave them at your feet. Sit at your feet and learn from you what we should do. And Father, this is what we want to do this morning. As we come into your presence, as we allow your spirit to move even at this moment, as, even as we speak. Lord God, we leave our issues and our anxieties at the feet of Jesus. We run up the mountain and leave them in your hands. Quietly we sit at your feet and we want to learn from you. Father, I want to pray for anyone who has never experienced you in, your, in their lives before. It is not enough just to talk theology. It's not enough just to talk about the God talk and raise your hands in worship. Those are good things, but they're meaningless if you never had a relationship with God. Jesus has come and through the power of the cross removed that glass wall between you and God. I want you to reach out to Him. Reach out to Him in faith this morning and commit your life to Him as your Lord and Savior. Never done that. Let's take this time to do that. As we surrender, Lord, again to you, Father, you are the king of our lives. We run to you. Our feet are not made to be stuck in the ground. We are made to run, hiking up the mountain of the Lord to you. We thank you that your kingdom is so big that it fills the entire earth. May we dwell with you. In Jesus' name.